0: In today's episode, Father Paul reiterates the emphasis in chapter 1 of Genesis that man is not special. He explains how the Hebrew terms ish and Isha as used in Isaiah chapter 2, corroborate his reading of Genesis about Adam and ish and the nephesh linked to Neshema. More importantly, how in the prophetic tradition man is brought low and humbled along the same lines of his belittling in Genesis. I am very happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays.
1: Let me go to 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Notice the difference. And then. God creates the fish and every winged bird according to its kind. When he comes to the animals, we don't hear that he created them, but you have a jump towards the human being that he creates. So it is though the author intentionally is writing his text in a way that does not allow you, at any point, to say that the human being is special. The matter of the image, we'll talk about it later. But for the time being, we need to remember that there is nothing special about him in this Toledot of the heavens and the earth. Now, I would like to jump to Isaiah chapter 2 on a note against the arrogance of the human beings. In chapter 2, we shall hear that the human being, the male human being, is referred to as Ish and his wife Isha. So we have two words, if you like, for the human being which are found together in Isaiah chapter 2, but under full condemnation by God, inasmuch that man, Adam, and the ish are arrogant. It's worth hearing it, and notice again the repetition three times is always intentional. So Adam is humbled and Ish is brought low, forgive them not. The haughty looks of Ha'adam shall be brought low, and the pride of Anashim, Anashim is the plural of Ish in Hebrew, shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the haughtiness of Adam shall be humbled, and the pride of Anashim, the plural of Ish, shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. I'm not repeating myself, because the first time it was verse 11, and this time it is verse 17. And men shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of His majesty when He rises, terrify the earth. We all know the parallelism in Hebrew, So what's the glory of God? It is his terror that he can destroy you and stump all over you. Only he, in that day, Ha'adam will cast forth their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks, and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And then in 22, turn away from Haadam, in whose nostrils is breath, Neshama, for of what account is he? And here, And again, I say, interestingly for me, you all know that it's the same authors that concocted the entire scriptures. (laughs) So besides Adam and Ish, or its plural Anashim, we have the unexpected mention of Neshama in Isaiah 2.22, which is the word that is found in Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. In Hebrew, it is neshama. Those who know Arabic can hear it through the word nasamat, which is breeze. Okay. And man became a living being and thus a living creature, which is nefesh haya. This is a text that shows you that the nephish is the expression of the breathing, and that's all. Let's hear it again. He formed man from the dust of the ground. So we have Adam and Adama, and breathed in his nostrils the neshama of life, and man became a nephish haya. Isaiah 2 is interesting, that's why I brought it into the pictures, Because on the one hand, it corroborates my reading of Genesis about Adam and Ish and the Naphish linked to Neshama. But more interestingly, because it's a later book with the prophets who are critical of the attitude of people in Genesis 1-3, to there is no one to be critiqued. Suddenly, what is critiqued is precisely what I call Greco-Roman theology and Eastern and Western theology, which has influenced obviously Judaism, it's not only Christian. That's the way things are that everything is brought low, completely flattened, as I like to say it, before the glory and the terror of god and later in isaiah we shall hear that that same word which is arrogance here again the translations like to play games when we translate it in conjunction with god it is you know the glory the majesty the power and But it's arrogance. It's the same word that is used of the arrogance of man and the arrogance of the waves and so on and so forth. What's the difference? The difference is that God, in his arrogance, which is the word used also in Psalm 93, looks majestically cute. It just suits him, but him alone but it doesn't suit us when we want to play God, and this is what all of us would like to do, and the issue is not that simplistic, friends, because with all due respect to classical theology, Jesus was in fear and trembling in Gethsemane, and he had to make the effort to take the decision to dismiss his will it is written right there in the gospels and accept the will of god for him although it was costly as we know from isaiah 53:10 so I went through a lot of asides because of the importance of the teaching of Scripture in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It already prepares the ground for what we are going to hear later in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Paul and so on. And it's high time that we really do our best to hear Scripture without perturbing it in our own mind, and I would like to end with a statement I made powerfully in my book. Actually, it was extreme. We should just convey to the others, as Psalm 78 tells us, Scripture as it stands, preferably in the original Hebrew, And our comments put them in another volume, in another volume. It is as though scripture has to be presented without introduction, without epilogue, without footnotes, no more study Bibles. Just the original. And when you try to explain to the people what it is saying, Try to make all your honest effort to convey what it is saying in the original into the ears of the original hearers. Any other approach about making the Bible alive today? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine the sacrilege? God refers to his own word as being the word of life and then. We have to hear ourselves saying, let me make this dead text alive to you today. What is this? But I better stop here. Otherwise, it's going to be another hour.
0: What's the difference between the command for the waters to
1: bring forth and the earth to bring forth and God himself creating? How are you reading that difference? There is no difference. Number one, I hope you agree with me. It's the same action. It is the production of these elements. What the author wants to convey to you, it's, you know, the text is also an impression, not in the bad sense it impresses you, but in the original meaning to impress, you know, when you print something into, it is there, so the author wants to make sure that you, when you look around you, you see the earth producing vegetation. It's not that every day God comes down and makes his command like the tree in your backyard. God did not make it. Or at least you can prove it. This is how things are done. The author wanted to say that... It is by the will or the command of God that this was done. That's why he, I believe, he plays, I mean, the repetition has to be explained somehow. That somehow it is the will of God and his trigger. In other words, he triggered that vitality of the earth and the vitality of the waters. If I am allowed to use modern terminology, remember that vitality is from the Latin word vita, which is life. He is the one that makes the waters and the earth produce. But once this is done, there is no need for repetition all the time. Remember in my book, I say the same thing about the blessing. Notice he blesses the animals to procreate. Okay. That is his action, similar to allowing the earth. But the blessing doesn't need to be done every time at every generation. Okay. He blesses, if you like, the sexual life, and the DNA of the animals, and I explain it this way in my book, and here I could just jump. Notice how in chapter five, this has always impressed me. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Obviously, this is a repetition of 1, 26, 27. But notice now how the author goes. He, very cunningly, he doesn't bring every time God. It's like when people tell me that God is in every encounter of every semen with an ovum. and so I don't think so. At least not according to Scripture. Here, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So the image and the likeness here is no more of God in its channeling to Seth. In other words, in his procreation, Adam is continuing. Now, one can do here what one can also do in Genesis 1, like when you ask me about why the repetition in two verses, it's because the author wants you to take both verses. Because here I can play the game of saying, the Bible said when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of his son. Yeah? So he acted exactly like God and blah, 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 blah. No, you can't do that. Because God did not father Adam. But Adam fathered Seth in his own image, which is the image of Adam. So the image is implanted, but not as theologians wanted to say, somewhere in the soul, in the brain, in the heart. You know, the discussions, the pages that were spent on that? No, it was imprinted in his genes. It is part of the body, and I refer this to the book, that the sexual cells have half of the chromosomes of the other cells. Now I don't want to go and say, "Oh, profound!" I don't care whether it is profound or not. All I'm saying <laughs> that this is a system imprinted. Otherwise, you're going to have ogres and ghosts and monsters and so. So that's my way. That's what I'm suggesting that it be the way of listening to something. If it is said in two different ways, if it is repeated another time, if it is repeated twice and become three, as it has its value. And I hope I tried to clarify my answer to you, Daniel refers to Gabriel as Ha'ish. I couldn't help but be reminded of the discussion about Ha'ish in Daniel, referring to Gabriel, and then with what's going on here in Genesis 1. Uh, I wouldn't jump to Genesis 1. The word ish is all over the Bible. It is someone in the realm, if you like, of the human being that you project into different directions later and I discussed this in my book. In the story of the flood, the author refers to the animals, you know, each one and its mate. It is ish and ishto, which is very stunning. It's like all the animals, the man and his woman. <laughs> okay, that's not the way languages are heard, you know. There is a certain projection on your part And if I push it, it is to say that the angels are not something of the realm of the angels, as we say in theology, as though it's a different realm. From the perspective of God, you have someone who is his servant and he is sent with a mission. Ish should be the one, like, you know, in Hebrew every one, every ish. It's a word that becomes common to the realm of the human being. And since the human being sees everything from his perspective, this is how things are. One, like one by one, ish, ish, one by one. One cannot give a word a value except the literary value of a word. Once you jump over that, things begin to be handled the way theology handled the soul. Suddenly the soul became platonic. But in the Bible, it's not platonic. It's it's breathing. And that's the way I hear it. The individual, in that sense-ish, one by one. It's the individual sent by God named Gabriel. Clearly, Malach Angelos is the one who is sent. Paul refers to himself as the Angelus of God. Here again, one has to be very careful not to move from functional meaning to essential trait. Like the angel, what we call angels, is a messenger from God, the way a prophet or an apostle or anyone that is used. And in this sense, he is one. We don't need to add individual. One that is chosen to be a messenger, and his name was Gabriel. And from there, we move more into the meaning of the name, Geber, the power of God.
0: The problem with Hellenistic philosophies is that they indulge the human tendency, the natural human tendency to synthesize and obscure complexity so that we can develop ideas that are easily handleable. But those ideas are the problem. When you work through Genesis, it's difficult, but that's the only way to be textual. And it's really the only way to understand how Paul, for example, of the many writers in the biblical school, but how Paul, the school of writers of the New Testament, how they're explaining and applying Genesis to the nations.
1: Very important. Thank you, Father Mark. When I say about the arrogance and so on, it is in Corinthians at the end, this is how he concludes his comments about wisdom when he belittles it. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is a clear reference to, to the prophetic teaching I just read you in Isaiah 2, but this reference is taken from Jeremiah chapter 9, and in my commentary on 1 Corinthians, again, just to show you how literature works, that sentence is a trigger for you to remember where it comes from, which is Jeremiah chapter 9. And then I show in my commentary that all the preceding terminology that Paul uses between verses 26 and 30 in 1 Corinthians is taken from that chapter of Jeremiah. (laughs) You know, but when you're writing, you cannot go and say that you write, you sense trigger. And what you said is very important because it applies to understanding that particular text. The hearer has to go and look where the original text, and then the hearer will realize that Paul was just borrowing words. In other words, he was communicating to you the teaching of Jeremiah, which is the word of God. Now, is that complex? It is complex, but it is not complicated. It's like Anatomy and physiology is not complicated. It's complex. How could it be complicated when it is the way it is and the doctors have to study it to be able to solve your problem? Complex is not complicated. Complicated is the word that the lazy person uses when faced with natural complexity. That's a nice statement, by the way have to do work. Anyway, I believe we did our job today.
0: The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.